new pastor. So we've invited him to come do that, to share his heart, to share his testimony, and to answer questions also. We've asked you guys to submit questions. We've got about nine questions, but we only have about a little over an hour, probably a lot less at this point, so I'm not going to labor that anymore. If there is time for questions, I will walk around with the mic, and you guys can freely ask questions. He's fine with that. So without further ado, I'm going to bring up Dr. Grady Smith. Grady Smith. Sorry. I got a mic. Thanks, Robbie. I'm thankful to be back with you tonight and um, to help we get to answer some of your questions and share a little bit more with you about the things you guys have asked me to share about. And so Robbie's asked me to do several things. First, to share my testimony. thought that would be an important first step so you know a little bit of my background and my story. And I don't like doing this one-sided. I wish I could, we had time tonight for me to hear all your stories as well, even last Sunday, just getting to have a few minutes with so many of you in the gym and just hearing at least what you do and your involvement at Gateway and it's all about your family. It's just a blessing to me. And so um, I really wish we could do this at a coffee shop or at Chick-fil-A, you know, where I could sit down with you like one-on-one and like share my story and hear your story. So Lord willing, we'll see what the Lord's got for us in the years to come. But, you know, hopefully if the Lord wills and I get to come as your pastor, we'll get to, I'll get to hear your stories also and hear what the Lord's done in your life because it is encouraging to hear the Lord's grace at work and be encouraged in that. So I'll try to go fast. You know, Robbie was saying we don't have a lot of time to do the nine questions in my testimony and kind of call to ministry and how I ended up where I am now in ministry. Um, this is one of the few times it helps to talk fast. So, you know, my, my international friends in Auburn are kind of like, you're from Alabama? You know, so talking fast is not always advantageous. Maybe for all that we're trying to get done in the next hour tonight, it'll be helpful. Um, but I, I grew up in Birmingham, um, so I grew up in Alabama. No, my accent doesn't really convey that. If I slow down enough to like a football game, you know, get really into the game, it might come out. But um, otherwise, yeah, I am from Birmingham. I grew up there. I have godly Christian parents who raised me in the church. Um, though I grew up in the church most of my life, it was head knowledge. I could give you any of the Sunday school answers through most of my life, but it wasn't heart knowledge. It never translated from here to here. And so I remember in eighth grade, we had, this is, I'm kind of dating myself, um, but in eight, we used to have these like youth weeks at church where the youth ran the church for a week. It was like really popular in the 70s and 80s, and it's kind of faded out um, over the years since then. We had a youth week, and I was asked to teach an adult men's Sunday school class. And this was going back to eighth grade. I wasn't even a believer. This is actually seventh grade. I wasn't even a believer yet at the time. And I was asked to teach a Sunday school class. Everyone in my church assumed I was a Christian, including my parents, because I was a good kid. Well, you never assume someone's salvation. You don't assume based on externals. We can all perform and get the right answers. And so no one ever challenged me with the gospel. And I remember... In that, as I was preparing to teach that men's class in seventh grade, they gave us suggested outlines of how to do the lesson. And the first thing was share your testimony. I remember as a seventh grader marking that out on my outline because I couldn't do it. I didn't have a testimony. But I didn't know what to do with it. I was a good kid. There was a lot of pride in my heart. And so, you know, I was too embarrassed to go walk the aisle or tell anyone I really needed Christ. And so I just kind of kept it inside for a while. Over the course of that year, I just grew miserable. I knew I was lost. I knew the head knowledge. I knew who Christ was, and I knew I was not following him. And through that year, I really was afraid of death. I really knew what my eternal state would be if I did not, if I did not repent and believe. But I refused to. My pride just kept me from doing that. Well, in the providence of God, in eighth grade, I transferred schools and ended up at Broward Christian School. It's the, it's the big, if you're familiar with the PCA, like Young Meadows is affiliated with down here, the mother church, if you will, of the PCA, is Broward Press in Birmingham. Frank Barker, their pastor at the time, actually founded the PCA in response to the liberalism of so much of the mainstream denominations. And so in eighth grade, for some reason, I, as a non-believer, wanted to go to Broward Christian School, that all my classmates were going, headed to a different school in Birmingham. And so I transferred there, and I remember sitting in my interview with the principal, and she was like, so are you a Christian, Grady? I was like, no. I remember her face was kind of like, I guess she wasn't used to that bluntness, you know, like, I was like, no, and she kind of was like, oh, well, maybe you'll have an opportunity to do that while you're here, you know, <laughs> all she could really say, and then the providence of God, that's what happened, eighth grade, I was still wrestling, I knew I was lost, I, I knew what the answers were, but I just, I didn't know how to step out, no one ever challenged me with that, no one ever said, Grady, what's going on in your heart, where are you spiritually, but in eighth grade, we had a missionary speak in my Bible class. And I remember listening to him talk, and his faith was so real. I was going, there's something there that I don't have. Well, then he did something, which I'm not sure theologically what I feel about it in a classroom setting at school, but they did the Lord's Supper in a classroom setting outside the church. And when they did that, I knew enough to know that you don't take the Lord's Supper if you're not a believer. Like, I didn't know a lot, but I knew that much. And so I remember, like, I had this, like, war going on in my heart and my soul that day. 
And so I remember I actually got up out of my seat, went to the, the teacher said, I can't take it. I'm lost. And he was like, go sit down. We'll talk after class, you know. And so after class, he sits me down and he just starts going back over the gospel. And it was just, the Lord was just drawing. It's the only way I know to describe it. Stuff I'd heard for years, it was head knowledge, was kind of starting to burn here. It was this longing to know Christ. And I started trying to make excuses again. I started getting kind of cold feet. And he was like, Grady, what is keeping you from trusting Christ? And I was like, I don't know anything. Why don't you trust Christ today? And I gave my, my heart and soul and life. And as best I knew how as an eighth grader, surrendered my life to the Lord in eighth grade there. And I remember two things happened. Immediately the fear of death was gone. Like, it just it vanished and has never come back. Like, it just was gone. But the second thing, a joy came into my life I never had before. I remember the rest of that day, like, I had to go to P.E. next period. And I hated P.E. because I'm the nerd. I'm not an athlete. I'm trying to get athletic later in my life here. I picked up swimming and racquetball and weightlifting, trying to avoid the Baptist preacher gut, you know, that's so common to Baptist pastors over the years. And so I picked that up over the years. But at the time, I was, you know, I was the nerd. I wasn't the athlete. And I hated P.E. But I remember going to P.E. with joy in my heart. I'm like, this is weird. What just happened? I met Christ. There's joy in all circumstances. And so... And so, and so I, I really, I mean, the Lord transformed me that day. Joy came in my life. Fear went away at that point. Um, I really didn't have much discipleship, though. I remember I, I was at a Baptist church in Birmingham. I went forward that next Sunday because that's what you do, right? It was, it was a good Baptist. You walk the aisle after you trust Christ. And, you know, and so I walked the aisle, and I remember the pastor presented me. And as we were, as we were leaving, my parents were like, doesn't he need something to help him? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So he wanders me up to the office. He kind of slaps at me. This, these call them survival kits, if you remember. And he's like, read that. And that was the extent of my discipleship. No one ever invested in me beyond that at that point. It was a survival kit that got stuck on my shelf, and I didn't do much. Again, thankfully, in the Lord's providence, I was at Briarwood School, so I got good solid bible teaching through those years some, there's some questions we'll answer about my reformed theology i got some briarwood influence over the years you know <laughs> through some of that but that there, as far as discipleship and walking with the lord and evangelism and just, and what it means in holiness there was none of that i got to auburn as a freshman i went to auburn because i wanted to be a veterinarian that had been my childhood dream when i was in third grade i already drew up my own architectural plans for my vet clinic like i had renderings in third grade of what i wanted my vet clinic to look like and you know, I was kind of very driven even back then, and so that's what I want to do. So I went to Auburn, enrolled in animal science and business because I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I thought Baptists were Baptists. Again, I was not a disciple. I did not know there was such thing as conservative Baptist and liberal Baptist. And I landed at a liberal Baptist church without knowing what I was getting myself into. And for about two years, I was part of that church. And, and I listened to things they were teaching. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I don't know why, but that doesn't sound right. Towards the end of my sophomore year at this church, the pastor of the church wrote an article, and he said, My job as a pastor is to make a Christian a better Christian, a Jew a better Jew, a Buddhist a better Buddhist, a Muslim a better Muslim. There's many paths to God. And I went, I don't know much, but I know that's not right. <laughs> and so I went to one of the associate pastors who I knew better than the senior pastor. I said, Do y'all believe this? Like, that's all I need to ask at the time. Again, I, I'd never shared my faith with at this point. I'd never read the Bible. I'd never had a quiet time by that point as a sophomore in college. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that wasn't right. And he said, I said, is this what you believe? He's like, well, if you wrote it, that's what we believe. You need to go talk to him about that. And I said, well, let me ask you one question. If this is what you guys believe, why are you in ministry? Again, I didn't know what else to ask. That's all I needed to ask. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and says, Grady, we're here to teach college students like you which parts of the Bible are true and which parts are false. And so the Lord used that and some other bad, borderline heretical teachings from the church to finally drive me out of the church and I didn't know where to land. I visited Lakeview where I'm on staff now. Once before I walked in, I went, mm -mm, too big, not for me. And I left, you know. And so, but again, in the providence of God, after kind of jumping around over about six months, I just felt the Lord drawing me to Lakeview. And so I landed at Lakeview towards the end of my junior year at Auburn. And for the first time, I sat under like verse by verse teaching a scripture. And for the first time, I had people saying, let me teach you how to share your faith. And I had evangelism training for the first time. And I began to have training in spiritual disciplines and began to get into groups where people were challenging me in holiness and stuff. And this was new to me, so my early discipleship goes back to the church where I'm on staff at right now in Auburn. And I'm grateful for that because that's what began to give me a foundation in the gospel, and a foundation in discipline, a foundation in theology. Because Lakeview is very theologically minded. The, I see some of college students here. The college students really challenge us and like, well, why do you believe what you believe? And we're just wrestling with those things together in our college ministry, the Lord really grew me a lot. I was still on track for vet school because, again, that was the idol in my life. I didn't know it was an idol at the time. I didn't know that idols could be things besides golden calves. But my career ambitions were an idol in my life. 
So I graduated from Auburn, got into vet school first try, dream come true, loved it. Halfway through first semester, I was just, I mean, it was awesome. It was everything I wanted to do in my whole life. I'm getting even bigger, grander visions of my vet clinic one day and what it was going to look like. And I had people trying to get me to do my Ph.D. after I finished my DVM and go into some specialty fields with information technology and vet medicine. So I had all these crazy dreams and stuff. And I was loving it. It was, it was my idol. I thought it was satisfying me. But all I can describe, and this is more than we have time for tonight, but... I had an encounter with the Lord one weekend at Lakeview. We were in the middle of worship. We're singing, and the Lord just whacked me upside the head, if you want a good southern expression, right? The, the Lord just really got a hold of me and really began speaking to my heart and saying, Grady, you've never trusted me with everything. And I was just floored. Like, Lord, what have I not trusted you with? And, and the, the response from the Holy Spirit speaking to me that day was, Grady, you've trusted me for your salvation, but you've never trusted me with your career. And I was floored, friends. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I was floored. And I remember going home that day going, what in the world just happened to me? And I remember starting to have this, like, really this identity crisis. And I went to vet school on Monday morning, and every drive, every passion was gone. Like, literally, I left on a Friday on a mountaintop, and I woke up Monday in a valley, and I hated it, and it never came back. Like, the Lord just overnight yanked out from under me all my desires for my career in vet medicine. And, it, you know, so it's a danger for us as men particularly, since we build so much of our identity into our careers, my whole identity was going to be Grady the veterinarian and going into veterinary technology. You know, I was like, who am I? Like, I was going back to like fundamental questions of who I am because everything got yanked out from under me. And I wasn't thinking ministry. I was thinking, you know, maybe I'd go into computer science or something like that because I did a lot of technology on the side. Like, I was the web developer for the veterinary college through undergrad and did IT support for the vet college through undergrad. And so, you know, I was like, maybe I'd do that. Or maybe I'd go into business. I have a business minor. Like, I'm trying to wrestle with all these things. Ministry was not on my radar, so to speak. Over the course of about another month or so, I began to start sensing the Lord might be stirring my heart to that because I realized the only thing I'm excited about is church. Like, I'm excited about evangelism. I'm excited about discipleship. And I was like, I realized all my affections were into ministry in the church. But I didn't know what to do with that. So there was a godly professor in the vet school. He was actually a member of Lakeview and a vet school professor. I'm like, oh, good. He understands both worlds. And so his name was Steve Kincaid. I went to, to Steve and I said, Dr. Kincaid, I don't know what's going on. Help me. And in his kindness to me, this man just began to pour hours into to my life. Every, I mean, I showed up every few days in a crisis point of office like, I want to walk out the door of vet school right now, you know. And he'd be the guy to listen, like, let's just pray through what God's doing. And he looked at me one day and said, Grady, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of vet students through my years teaching here. So I've seen a lot of guys get burned out and quit. But this isn't burnout. God's speaking. You better go listen and figure out what he's telling you. Through that and just a number of other things, I began to realize the Lord was stirring my heart for ministry. But I wish I could say I was like some of the early disciples who dropped everything and left. I didn't. I was like, okay, Lord, if you want me to do this, prove it. I realize that's really a bad idea, so I don't commend that to you. I, again, I hadn't been very well discipled yet at this point. I didn't know that was wrong to do this. So looking back in Bible stories, is more like Gideon. Okay, here's my fleece, you know. Again, that's not the example to follow, but I put out a lot of fleeces. And the Lord in his kindness just kept answering those prayers. Lord, if you want me to do ministry, you're going to have to show me by doing this. And it would happen. Uh-oh. He really did it. Okay, well, Lord, if you want me to go to ministry, you've got to show me this. He did that. And finally, I had a friend look at me. Grady, would you please stop? You're going to have a burning bush soon if you keep this up. Please stop, you know. And so after about three months of wrestling with this, I finally got to the point I just knew what the Lord was calling me to do. And so I wrote my resignation from vet school, turned it in, and there was just joy. That joy that I felt when I trusted Christ just flooded my heart. I knew I was on the right path. And so the Lord, in his kindness to me, sent me to Louisville. I ended up at Southern Seminary. The church I'm at now has an intern program in partnership with Southern. I wanted to do it, but I missed it by about six months. They open it up once every three years, and the church brings on six guys for three years to do a full master's degree at the church, you know, bringing in the professors from Louisville so they're getting practical training. I wanted to do it, but the Lord closed the door. So I moved to Louisville. I'm grateful for that. I got involved doing IT support for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a ministry that Piper and Grudem founded to help the church deal with gender issues, and I got to do IT support, but read a lot of stuff and grow in that area through that. So great friendships from my time at Southern. Really got stretched theologically in a lot of ways through, through my time there. Um, but perhaps one of the main reasons the Lord sent me there is I did my first mission trip while I was there. And I went with a Vietnam vet back to Vietnam, and we smuggled Bibles into the country. And we did illegal literature distributions across the country and did backpacking adventures to get Bibles in the villages where they'd never seen a Caucasian person before. And, you know, and we walk into the village and they're like, you know, and the kids are like pulling out their cameras, like snapping pictures. You know, it's like, you know, what do you do with this? You know, and, but, but to see the lostness of Vietnam 
just broke my heart because, you know, I'd read about it. But to, for the first time to be in a country where I would talk to college students who have PhDs or getting their PhDs, and we'd be in coffee shops in Ho Chi Minh City and to sit there with them. And, they, and I knew in that culture, you could, if you asked them a question, they'd ask you back. So I'd be like, tell me about your family, tell me about your family. And I'd ask them, what's most important to you? And they'd ask me, well, Grady, what's most important to you? And I'd say, well, have you ever heard of Jesus? And they're like, who's that? Well, have you ever heard of, of Christians? No, what's that? And I'm talking to PhD people who've never heard the name of Jesus. The Lord began to break my heart for the nations with that. Got back to Louisville and discovered that there's Vietnamese in Louisville. Imagine that. God and his providence sends people from other countries to our country. Without knowing that the Lord was planning in my heart a desire for internationals at that point as well. So I'm two years into seminary. It's about a 96-hour master's program, about 50 hours into it. And our senior pastor, Stuart Levy, Brother Al, came to preach in chapel. As he's preaching, I just felt the Holy Spirit kind of tugging my heart and saying, go back. I'm like, this is insanity. I'm halfway done with my master's. I'm not about to go back to Auburn. But for about two weeks, I couldn't shake that. So after two weeks, I finally picked up the phone and called Brother Al. And Levy's a, kind of a big church, so it can be hard to get through to him. And in the providence of God, again, I got through first call to, to him. I said, Brother Al, I don't know why, but do you think I might be a good fit for the intern program at Levy? He's like, Grady, I've been praying for two weeks to God to bring us the sixth guy. You're the guy I've been praying for. Come on back. And so halfway through my master's, I moved back to Lakeview, and I finished up the last of my 46 hours of my master's degree or so while interning at Lakeview for three years. We have a pastoral training program where guys get the Southern degree with the professors coming in from Southern Seminary while they're being mentored by each of the pastors. So over three years, you kind of see how a healthy church functions. So I served under a semester in preschool, semester in children, youth, college, internationals, all these facets. Spent a, during that internship, spent a summer in Las Vegas, Nevada, working with North American Mission Board church planners and had more culture shock in my life there than I've ever had anywhere else. This Alabama boy was not ready for Vegas. Yeah, I can tell you stories on that, but not for tonight. The next summer, I went to Nairobi, Kenya, and I had a lot less culture shock in Nairobi, Kenya, than I had in Las Vegas. I was sitting in Nairobi any day. I can fit in there. I'm not Las Vegas. But I spent a summer with North American Mission Board, summer with IMB, just getting a lot of the theory of missions from a, and missions evangelism and church growth, getting to see what that looks like in real life. And it was, a, it was just great experiences. And through those three years, the Lord just grew me in so many ways, theologically, understanding of the church. And so I'll say about... Maybe about four or five months before graduation, our senior pastor, Al Jackson, called me in his office. And that's like getting called to the principal at Lakeview. I'm like, oh, no, what did I do, do wrong here? And he just said, Grady, what do you want to do when you graduate? I said, Brother Al, every time I start to do a resume or send out a resume, I feel conviction that I'm outside the Lord's will. And I don't know what to do with that. So my heart's here. He goes, great, you're staying. And I was like, what is that going to look like? He said, I don't know, but you're staying on staff somehow. And so he tried two or three different ideas. Nothing seemed to be working. And finally, our internationals director came and said, I'm retiring soon. Why don't you let Grady come on as our internationals pastor and kind of shadow me, let me mentor him and get him ready. When I retire, he'll take over. And that's what we did in 05 when I finished the internship. Uh, Rob Martin, who's a retired university professor, who kind of helped found our internationals. Ministry. He's the one right now at Lakeview running our English program on my behalf tonight. Um, Rob took me under his wings and kind of spent his years of working with international students, began to invest that in me, took me to China with him to introduce me to Chinese culture there. Um, and I just spent some time working under him for about two years. And he retired in 07, and I took over the reins, so to speak, of international ministry at Lakeview. I've been doing that for the last almost nine-plus years at Lakeview in, in that role. So how did I end up here today as the international pastor at Lakeview being considered by you guys for your pastor? Over about the last two years, the Lord has just been doing a stirring in my heart. Um, at Lakeview, I wear a lot of hats. And so, you know, I, I joke around people, when you get your job description, at least in a Southern Baptist world, there's a little line at the bottom that gets you in trouble. It says, whatever else the pastor needs, if you're an associate pastor, 30, probably 75% of my week is that one little line, whatever else the pastor needs, you know, more so than... <laughs> yeah, CJ can affirm that one, right? <laughs> But, but through doing that over the years, I've, I've worn lots of hats. I do a lot of our college student discipleship, doing systematic theology studies for our college students. I've done youth discipleship over the years. But over the last few years, for some reason, I picked up a lot of counseling in the church and just started to do some certification with that because just realized that the gospel has answers for all life's problems, whether it's an addiction, whether it's our marriage in trouble, whether we're struggling in parenting, whether it's just general relationships. The gospel has answers for our problems. And, and most churches, at least where I've been around in Auburn, the pastors are so busy preaching and doing all this stuff, they don't really have time for that relational counseling. Like, counseling is really discipleship. It's really one and the same thing. And, you know, a lot of pastors are like, well, if I can't fix the problem. I actually had a pastor tell me one time, if I can't fix their problem in two meetings, I refer them to a professional. And I'm like, no, you know. 
And so just over the course of the last few years, the Lord's given me favor in the eyes of people in the congregation. I have people show up in my office saying, hey, my marriage is in trouble. Help me. Or guys show up in my office. A lot of guys show up in my office. Hey, I've got a porn addiction. Can you help me overcome this? And I haven't hung up my sign that I'm a counselor lately, but the Lord's just been sending people our ways. And we just really developed a passion for that. Um, every time I get a chance to teach or preach, just growing passions for that. And so about two years ago, I sat down with our senior pastor I said, Brother Al, I love our international students, and I love what I'm doing here, but the Lord is stirring my heart, and I think the Lord's leading me to do something that's going to be more of a pastoral role. I don't know what that looks like, but you know, my heart is really for, for, for shepherding the flock. That's the best way I can come up with. I, I want to invest in the people in the congregation. I want to help people overcome addictions and struggles. I want to let them see the Word of God change them. I want to teach them theology and teach them how the Word of God transforms them. So that's what I'm excited about, and I still love our international, and I love doing that cross-culturally, but... My heart's no longer in the running of the big programs to draw the internationals in. My heart is in shepherding the body. What does that look like? He said, well, let's just keep praying and talking. He and I have had ongoing conversations for about the last two years about this. The Lord's been stirring my heart, stirring my heart. And I guess it was about six months or so ago. He said, Grady, he said, we don't want you to go. He said, you know, you've got a place here as long as you'll stay, you'll stay. But he said, with the way the Lord's stirring you, he said, I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord sends you to be a pastor somewhere sometime. It's about the time that I found out about they're opening, and just out of curiosity, sent my resume and didn't hear much at first. And then all of a sudden, back in July, Robbie emails me and says, are you interested? I'm like, well, sure, we'll see what the Lord's got for us here. So how to end up to where we are today is really just, I guess, over a two-year process of the Lord stirring us. And, and where we see the greatest fruit in ministry is in our teaching, is in our marriage counseling, in pre-marriage counseling. Oh, my goodness, we have so much fun with pre-marriage counseling. And, and just that type of, the, the, again, shepherding-type responsibilities. We've just discovered the Lord has been stirring us for that. So I've kept our senior pastor at Lake in the loop. He, this is, he's, he, he's not in the dark about this whole process. He knows where we are with everything. But when I finally told him I'm talking to Gateway and gave him specifics about talking to you guys, he looked at me with all seriousness. He said, Grady, he said, I don't want you to go. I'll be heartbroken if you go. But he said, I think this may be the Lord's will for you. He said, and watching you, he said, when God calls, there's a push and there's a pull. He said, for the last two years, I've seen the push. God has been stirring your heart and pushing you to something and he said, I keep wishing we could find a way to make it work here, but there's just not budget dollars to open up another pastoral position to move you to that and to hire someone to replace you. So there's been a push for two years. He said, everything you just talked about Gateway, I'm pretty sure is the pull that the Lord's been doing. He said, let's watch and pray, but I think this may be the Lord's will for you. And so I've just had his affirmation and blessing on us. So that's how we got to the point to where we are now. So I, I hope that covers kind of like testimony and kind of what we're passionate about. And again, well, and so, So all I just say, I want to hear your story sometime. I know we can't do it tonight, but I really want to hear your stories. That, that, that's God's grace at work in our life. This is, if you had asked me when I was you know, a senior at Auburn, you know, you're going to be a pastor one day, I would have laughed at you. Like, that wasn't what I had in my mind I was going to do. But in the Lord's kindness, he's given me an opportunity career-wise to get to invest in people and to get to teach the Word of God. And you know, whether that's pulpit-wise or sitting at one-on-one in my office with someone struggling with something, just opening God's Word together and praying over it. That's just, that's what gets Julie and I both excited, is just is shepherding. I guess if there's a word to describe what we enjoy doing, it's shepherding. So, so that, that's how we got to, to, to where we are on this. So questions. You guys sent nine questions. They're great. I love them. You, you can tell a lot about a people by, by the questions they ask, and you guys ask really good questions, which shows me that you as a church are deep thinkers, you as a church really understand theology, and so I jot them down so I make sure I am faithful to cover all of the questions and make sure we don't miss anything. <clears throat> so the first, there's actually two questions that came in, to, and they're separate, but they're related, and so y'all are going to not let me have an easy one to start with. So here we go. First question you sent, what is your view of Calvinism? How would you preach, teach, lead a diversified body of believers? And then related to that, number two, someone sent one in, CJ, in your resume, you said, and here's my quote from my resume, I believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Furthermore, I'm reformed in my soteriology or doctrine of salvation, holding to a belief in the doctrines of grace while recognizing it as a tertiary theological issue that should not divide believers in any way in a church. So the question then was, I wonder how grace could be tertiary, third in the line of importance. Would you give your own words of explanation? And there were some other things the person has said on that. So we'll start off with a tough one, right? What are my views on Calvinism and all of this? First of all, labels are not very helpful because everyone has different definitions that go with labels. If you ask some people, are you a Calvinist? By that, you, will, you sprinkle babies and you're a Presbyterian. And, you know, so there's different definitions. How do I define myself in terms of this? 
when I look at Scripture, everywhere in Scripture, I see the sovereignty of God. Like, I just cannot escape that. Everywhere I look in Scripture, God is absolutely sovereign over everything in creation. There is no God wondering what's going to happen next. God ringing his heavens. Oh, my plans just aren't working out. I mean, everything I see in Scripture from beginning to end is God just overarching rule authority over all things in all the world, bringing history ultimately to its climax when Christ comes again. So there's no accidents happening. So I put everything under the sovereignty of God. Because the label Calvinism has so much baggage with it, you know, I typically describe myself as reformed more than so, so as a Calvinist. Do I embrace the five points of Calvinism, depravity of mankind, that God elects people, um, that the Christ's atonement was specific for the people who would believe in him, for irresistible grace, that God's grace can't be resisted, that the saints, once you're saved, will persevere to the end. If you want to tag me down those five points, sure, you could tag me down to those. I, I can see those all in Scripture. But I don't use that label because I don't think that label is very helpful. So I'm reformed. Sometimes people use the synonym doctrines of grace to describe that, and so I would fit under that. Now, how do I understand things? Let me give a little backstory here. All theological issues I see in terms of three concentric circles, primary, secondary, and tertiary. So this is kind of alluding to the second question. So let me give you a little definition, and you'll kind of see where it all fits in. Primary are things we have to agree on to recognize one another as brother and sister in Christ. That's the gospel. So, that, so, so grace, not speaking of the doctrines of grace, not Calvin, but speaking of grace itself, God's kindness to us through Christ, that's primary. So, so grace, the gospel, who is Christ is primary. So the church I went to as, as a freshman in Auburn that taught that Jesus was not necessarily perfect, that Jesus is one of many ways to God, that the Bible's not true, you know, there's, those are primary issues there. I can't even link arms with them in the community for gospel work because they abandoned the faith, basically. That's primary. So that, that's all I consider primary. Secondary are issues that they're not unimportant. They're still important, but they're issues we need to agree about to function well in the same local church. But we don't have to necessarily agree on, on them to, um, to, to link arms for the gospel. So secondary issues would be things like infant baptism. My mentors have all been Presbyterians. I got saved because of Presbyterians in Birmingham. So I'm thankful for my Presbyterian friends. My, both of my mentors outside of Lakeview International's ministry are PCA guys. One's with the RUF, if you're familiar with Reformed University Fellowship. He's the head of their international wing. And the other one is a guy who was the international's pastor at Briarwood in Birmingham. So my mentors have all been Presbyterian. Despite that influence, Briarwood Pres will not hire me as much as I love Briarwood because I don't sprinkle babies. Well, it's not that I question their salvation. It's not that, you know, I look at Briar and be like, mm-mm-mm, they just don't get the gospel. No, they get the gospel. They love Jesus. God blesses their ministry. But on the secondary issue, we agree to disagree. We have a differing understanding of the role of baptism. And so we don't question each other's salvation. We don't question each other's love for Jesus. We don't, we don't even question each God blessing him. I see God blessing my Presbyterian friend's ministry. It just simply is secondary. We love each other. We love the gospel together. We link arms together for the sake of the gospel. But in the same local church... They're not going to hire me. In fact, the, the head of RUF's international wing it was in our home in Auburn a few years ago. And he's like, Grady, I really want an international campus chaplain at Auburn for RUF. Can't I win you over on infant baptism and let me hire you for this role? It's like, sorry, Al, no. You know, it's secondary. So it's, 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 it's something we can, he and I can laugh about because it's not a dividing wall in terms of our unity as Christians. It's just we're not going to function the same ministry, the same church together. Now, tertiary or theological issues is not they're not important. They are important, but they're not issues that should ever divide in any way. They're issues that we can agree to disagree and function in the same local church. Tertiary issues, Calvinism would fall under this. There should not be a dividing point in church. Differing understandings of Pentecostal charismatic theology is tertiary. Christians can agree to disagree and function really well in the same local church, but disagree on those issues. We're talking about how infinite God works in the world, and our little tiny, finite minds are trying to understand God. We're not going to all land exactly the same way in all of our tertiary theological issues because God is so much bigger than us. Our, we don't have a God that we invented with our minds that all fits into our perfect human systems. There's going to be mysteries. There's going to be things that are hard to understand. So because of that, we end up with tertiary theological issues. We can wrestle with them and have fun with them, but we never divide over them. So in terms of Calvinism, charismatic theology, I group all that in tertiary issues. The problem is, for a lot of people, they take tertiary issues and make them primary. They take tertiary issues and make them secondary. Like, I have friends who go to 100% reformed churches. What's the point? Like, why would you build your whole church around a tertiary doctrine saying, we're the reformed church of Auburn? Just as, I mean, no one would be like, well, we're the premillennial church of Auburn. Well, that's, in times, theology is tertiary, you know. So, apart from Christ coming back, that's a little bit more important. But, you know, how that's all going to timeline pan out is tertiary. 
No one forms a church just around that. Why do we form churches and split over Calvinism, Arminian lines, any more so than we do in our understanding of end time stuff? So how do we function together in a church? We understand this is a tertiary issue and that believers are going to disagree on this. We have for 2,000 years because, again, our little tiny, finite brains are trying to understand how infinite God and all of his wisdom has chosen to save a rebellious humanity like us. There's mystery to it, friends, and mystery is good for us. We, we don't like mystery. We want everything to be clear-cut, especially those of us with engineering-type brains. We want everything clear-cut and in a row. But it's okay to have some mystery. When you look at Scripture on Calvinism particularly, there is a paradox here. You can look at Scriptures that God desires all to be saved. Well, I mean, that's pretty clear. God desires none to perish, but all to come to life. You look at John 3.16, there's, there's all Scriptures throughout it. But you also look at things like Acts 13.48, those who are appointed for eternal life believed. Well, there's this tension there. Again, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It can't. But you see in Scripture, God desires all to be saved, yet he only elects some. How does that work? I won't ever know, I don't think. Nor will you. There's, there's, we can have, I, have, I have theories. I can, if we have, not tonight, but sometime, I, I have all sorts of views of, of, of how this paradox could potentially work to where we have absolute, in a sense, freedom, but yet God is absolutely sovereign over that, and our free choices completely fit into his sovereign plans. And I've got some ways that might make that work, but... That's, that's even not even tertiary. Let's start going three or four levels below tertiary on that one. So um, one of the things that I've loved at my time at Lakeview is the staff is not unified around, on, on this tertiary issue of Calvinism. I'm the most, I, I am the most reformed guy on the Lakeview staff. You know, so just to be honest, so if you know where I'm coming from, my two best friends on the staff, guys that, that Robbie and I think maybe Alicia called um, on there, are the most Arminian guys on the church staff. So my best friends in ministry at Lakeview are the most Arminian guys on the staff, and I'm the most reformed guy on the staff. When we go do evangelism on campus, they're the guys I call, hey, who are you going with on campus? They say, come with me. The guys I most enjoy doing evangelism with at Lakeview are the guys who theologically have a very different understanding of this tertiary issue. Why? We unite on primary and secondary. We still share Christ the same way. We still do missions the same way. And so it should never divide the church. And so, so I guess to try to wrap up this long-winded answer to your question here, because it's, it's a big one, though, I'm not pushing systems. You're not going to hear me from the pulpit talking about why it should be a five-point Calvinist. No, I, God forbid y'all get rid of me if I ever do that. You know, I, I'm not here to push systems or, the, or particular thought patterns. I want to be faithful to Scripture. And there's a paradox on this issue here, but you're going to hear a lot of the sovereignty of God because I see the sovereignty of God everywhere. And so from Genesis to Revelation, I see God's sovereign rule. And so you're going to hear that come out. You're not going to hear labels and stuff like that. So I hope that kind of answers your question on that one. Did anyone who asked that question, if you asked a question, do you want to follow up on that? Did I, did I leave any questions unturned on that one from the people who asked that? I want to make sure I... Okay. All right, so those are the first two. Two down, seven to go. 30 minutes, I can talk fast, right? <laughs> Third question. Explain how you understand your biblical authority as a pastor as opposed to or in cooperation with the biblical authority of the elders in the context of ministry and decision-making. So biblical authority of pastor as opposed to or in cooperation with the, with the authority of the elders. Good question. Again, I told you, y'all are deep thinkers. I, I like your questions here. Um, when I look at Scripture, there's only two offices in Scripture. There's the office of pastor, which sometimes gets the term elder or bishop. So pastor, bishop, elder, overseer, all those terms are used synonymously in my understanding of Scripture for one singular office. And then you have deacons, and deacons pray, deacons serve in the body. Pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer, bishop, whatever term you want to use, they teach and they lead and they have the kind of the authority in the church, so to speak. And so I see those as two as the two offices. So we're dealing with the issue of the authority of the pastoral office, pastor, overseer, elder, bishop office with that. I don't see any distinction in Scripture between senior pastor and lay elder. You know, it's one, there's, there's no, that distinction is not in Scripture. It's the office of the elder, the overseer, the pastor. And so if you guys call me, Robbie is just as much an elder, a pastor, an overseer, a bishop as I would be. It's not a tiered structure. It's best to understand that senior pastor is simply the one who is getting paid to, to preach every Sunday, you know, but, it's, but to co-lead with the other guys. So do I see it as authority in opposition to elders? No. Rather, I think what I see in Scripture is in cooperation with. The, the pattern of Scripture is a plurality of elders leading a church. Guys, this is one, re- one thing that drew me to Gateway, and one reason I applied here is Julie and I, a few years back, y'all don't quote me on this and get me in trouble back in Auburn, okay? But, but, you know, I'm in a church right now where the senior pastor, he's a godly man, I love him dearly, he kind of rules the church in a sense, a very traditional Southern Baptist senior pastor role. 
the deacons are kind of quasi-elders because they kind of rule, but they don't kind of rule. It kind of depends on what he wants them to rule on. Yeah, don't quote me on this. And then, and then the pastors are more like program managers, you know, who kind of execute the, the, the things that happen there. And it laid is served well because we have a very godly man at the helm. But in other churches, that doesn't work so well because the reality is one man who's in charge of a church, we all struggle with pride to different degrees, but that's a key place to give the enemy a spot to get in your heart and destroy you in that, as well as no one man has all the spiritual gifts a church needs. No one man has all the wisdom a church needs. So what do you look at when Paul's ministry? He didn't establish an elder, a bishop, an overseer. He established elders to rule the church. And so that's one thing that drew, drew me to Gateway. Several years ago, Julie and I just were talking about, you know, in this two-year process of kind of the Lord stirring us of what was next, we began to say our commitment is we're only going to end up, if we leave Lakeview, we're either going to stay here unless the Lord calls us somewhere else, but if we end up somewhere else, it needs to be a church that's plurality elder-led or one that's open to being pushed that direction. And that's one of our commitments because I don't want to end up in just a church to where they're looking to the senior pastor to be the know-all, end-all guy for everything. That's just not healthy for me or for the church. And so, in, so my understanding of biblical authority is a shared leadership between all the elders together, using their spiritual gifts together in ministry, wisdom together in ministry to lead the church. And that's my understanding of that. Whoever submitted that, or anyone else, you need to follow up on that. Any sub-questions on that one? Okay. Number four, what are your thoughts on life groups, small groups, home groups? How much focus should be placed on these groups? What are my thoughts on them? I like them. <laughs> They're good. They're, they're, they're healthy. It's, it's, you know, like at late, so, so Lakeview has about 1,000 people on Sunday mornings. Lakeview has one home group on, on, during the week, and that's at my house. We're the only home group in a church of 1,000 people. Because Lakeview is very traditional. Again, don't, don't get me in trouble in Auburn over this. But yeah, <laughs> I love Lakeview. Don't, don't tell you that wrong. I'm, I'm so thankful. My, I've been there since 2002. I wouldn't be there that long if I didn't value the church and love it and appreciate it. Uh, but Lakeview puts all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, and that's the Sunday school basket. And Sunday school is good. There's people who will come on Sunday morning and study the Bible who won't get it anywhere else. But there's only so much you can do in 60 minutes, especially when you're rushing off going, I hear the choir singing. It's time to run. You know, you know. I'm in my sex class. I'm going, they're singing. I'm going to get fired if I don't show up in the church. Time to run. Okay, quick prayer. Let's get out of here. You know, there's only so much you can do in one hour when you have a set window. And there's just something that happens when we get outside the walls of the building and get in each other's homes and living rooms or restaurants or coffee shops. There's a shared life that happens in those settings where ministry can happen in much deeper ways. Again, I'm not anti-Sunday school. I teach a Sunday school class. I lead our Young Marys with Young Kids class. You have to get pregnant to end up in my class. But you know, if you're a Young Mary and you get pregnant, you get pushed up to my class right now at Lakeview. And, and, and I love it. But the ministry depth of what I've been able to do with that class is only so much on Sunday mornings. When we start getting, we, getting into each other's homes for monthly fellowship, when I get the men outside that group to get a men's group together, that's where the ministry starts happening. Because there's only so much you can do in a teaching setting. So, again, I'm not anti-Sunday school. I'm not, if y'all call me, I'm not going to come in and shut down Sunday school. That's not, you know. But I, I want to encourage us as a body, if y'all bring me here, to let's get back to doing more outside of the walls of the building into home groups. Now, the other thing, and this will tie in in a few minutes with a question about internationals, but it looks a lot like New Testament Christianity. And homes together, sharing meals. So you go back into Acts, and they broke bread together, and they were daily in each other's homes. And our kind of privatized American culture, we just don't, we have a hard time with that. My friends from Nigeria get this a lot easier than I get it. The idea of sharing life just comes naturally to my friends from Kenya or from, or from Nigeria, much more so than it does for most of us who grew up in North America. And so I would just... From what I know about you guys and the little bit I've been around y'all and what I've seen from Pastor Search Committee and my time with the elders and just even last Sunday, is you guys are a real people who love God and love each other. And what would happen if you got unleashed with that, not just here in the building, and again, I'm not minimizing stuff in the building, I'm not minimizing big events like the carnival, these are all good things, but what happens if you got unleashed in your neighborhoods with this? I mean, I think the most undertaught verse on evangelism in all Scripture is when Jesus said, by your love for one another, they will know you're my disciples. Like, when we teach on evangelism, we never get to that verse, but that is like the most undertaught verse on evangelism. There's just power in you guys getting together, shared life in your homes, your neighbors going, why are those cars in your driveway last night? What's, what's different about you guys? And there's just power in that. And so what is, what is my, I guess, the answer to the question, what do I think about life groups? Bring them on. I, I, th- I think... Focus on them. I think it should be a big focus of the church. I don't think it should be mandatory. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I think there's so much grace. I think we get in trouble if you to say you have to do this, this, and this, this. I mean, because everyone's lives are different. So but I think there's to be a lot of grace, but a lot of encouragement to help people share life 
outside the building for the good of not only their own soul living in community, but for the good of the kingdom. So, you want to follow up on that? Sub-questions on that one? I want to make sure I'm covering the questions. So, we're moving through quickly enough. I think we can get some off. Question five. How important is prayer individually and corporately? How can we foster a heart for individual and corporate prayer here at Gateway as a body? Great question. How important is prayer? Very. <laughs> you know, you, you, you wouldn't hire me if I told you anything other, right? You know, nor should you. How important is prayer? It's, it's very important. Um, and this goes back to kind of the first question. If we believe that everything comes from the Lord, and this goes back to even the last Sunday's sermon, if we realize that Jesus is the giver and the gift, we are totally dependent upon him. And our culture, we don't like that. We, we are a culture of self-help. I mean, honestly, I'm trying to get on my soapboxes here, but you go to a Christian bookstore and you look at the books that sell the best. They're not books that point you to the sovereignty of God. They're not books that point you to, to our dependency on God. They're books that point you to, here's what you need inside of you to, to do better. It's self-help. That's just pop psychology that's Christianized to sell books, friends. We are, Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, I think we read that verse and we pass over it and we're kind of like, well, it's somehow in our minds we say, apart from Christ, we can't do things as well. But that's not what it says. It says, apart from me, you can do absolutely zero, nothing can be done. And so if we're not praying, we're just trying to do it on our own and it's futile. I mean, if the Lord doesn't show up, what we're trying to do, investing in the souls of people, there can be nothing that good that comes out of that if we're trying in our own strength. There was a guy who used to be with the International Mission Board years ago. He was, his name was Randy Sprinkle. He was, a, um, he was the prayer coordinator for the International Mission Board. I think he's now a director of missions somewhere up in the Midwest or somewhere. I don't remember where it is. But he, he had a quote years ago that just nailed me in a lot of ways. And I'll never forget that he said, Prayer is an unbroken confession of our utter dependence upon God. Prayerlessness is an unspoken testimony of our utter dependence upon our own selves. So prayer is an, un, is an unbroken confession of our dependence on God. Prayerlessness is an unspoken testimony of my dependence upon my own self. And friends, if we're depending upon our own self of what the Lord has called a church to be and to do, we have no hope. And these are a good southern idiom that my Chinese friends don't understand. We're up a creek without a paddle. You know, we, we need Christ in the midst of everything. We are dependent upon the Lord. And so how important is prayer? It is not just important. It is essential for the life of the church and the life of the individual believer. So, so, so how do we foster prayer in the church? That's a great question. I, I, there's, I have ideas in my head, but part of it's going to be me getting to know you guys better to talk about what that looks like. Obviously, we preach on it. We teach on it. Elders model it. Deacons model it. Small group leaders and single teachers model it. We bring in the light and into the Sunday school groups to make sure we're not just passing on prayer sheets, but we're actually praying together. But again, to take time to do that is going to kind of ties back in the last question. You're going to have to pull out some, finding ways to get the body together outside the walls of the building sometimes in our homes to pray for one another. Just modeling when someone says, hey, you know, I really have a prayer request. Not just being like, okay, I'll pray for it, but stopping right then and there and praying for that person. Just, it's, it's a culture. It's a culture that can't just be passed down from the pulpit. Obviously, we can teach on it, but it's a culture that happens when you guys realize, hey, I think you already do this. I mean, I've heard y'all get together on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock to pray with the pastor's church committee. That, that blessed me. That told me a lot about you as a congregation. I mean, we can barely get the pastors together at late view at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings to pray, you know, much less to get the, the lay people in church together to pray at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, and so I think it's just going to be it's, it's intentional modeling, intentional teaching, intentional accountability one another. You need, to be, you need to hold the elders accountable to be praying. They need to hold you accountable because we live busy lives, and our culture is not a culture that's going to push us to get on our face for the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do anything without you help. So it's going to be community driving us to remind each other of our dependence on the Lord and driving us to, to pray more. So I know that's a very short answer to the question. I did my whole Ph.D. dissertation on how our view of God's providence impacts our prayer life. That's the topic for another day, but, you know, I don't have time to go through that one right now, but, you know, it's to the area of interest. But, yeah, and, and with that said, um, I think the more we understand the, the sovereignty of God, so let's tie this back into question one, the more we understand that God is on his throne, the more we understand that we can't do anything without him, that he's, like I said Sunday, he's the one who takes full, you know, ownership of all of our salvation, it leads us to pray more. I think Reformed theology doesn't kill our prayer life. I think it, it leads to a greater prayer life because it's not dependent upon me. If everything's dependent upon him, from my salvation to my ministry, effectiveness, anything, if it's all on him, I better be crying out to him. And again, the best place to do that is not just me and the Lord, though that's important, it's people together. So 
we'll tie the question of community and prayer and life groups and Calvinism all together on that. So does that, that answer y'all's question on that one? Anyone want to follow up on prayer? Feels like an injustice to only spend five minutes talking about prayer. Okay, number six. What are your thoughts on the importance of discipleship? Important. Our, our calling as Christians is not to make converts, it's to make disciples. You, you look at the Great Commission, and it's a whole sermon for another day, so we'll go faster. But if you look at the Great Commission, the command is not to go. In our English, we lose that sentence. We feel like the command is to go. It's not. In the Greek, it's literally, as you are going. So that's the context. As you're going, wherever you're going, it's not go or see this. As you're going, wherever you're at, the command of, of Matthew 20 is make disciples. So Christ's final words for us are not what we often interpret, go. Christ's final words are make disciples. And what's the concept of all the nations? How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always into the earth. So Christ's final words to us are not a command to go, but wherever you're going to be making disciples. And you do that by baptizing. That means we're evangelizing. We're sharing the hope of Christ with people. We're sharing the gospel with people wherever we're going. But it doesn't stop there. It's not like you have evangelism here and discipleship here. It's all one continuum. It's in God's kindness, God working through us as his ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5, is we take people, as the Lord takes people through us, and we start with someone who doesn't believe in the Lord, and they begin to think, well, there might be a God. And through the Lord working through his gospel coming through our mouths, they start saying, okay, I want to believe in him. And they get to a place they believe, but it's not stopping there. It's like, okay, now, what's this belief look like in my daily life? And it's helping them grow in holiness with the goal of saying, okay, well, God's called you to be an ambassador. Now you go out. Advancing discipleship is all just like the navigators teach so well, if you're familiar with the NAVS ministry. It's just like one big continuum. So how important is discipleship? It's everything in terms of the church's mission because our job is to be making disciples. So what's the point of preaching? It's not to to make people happy on a Sunday morning. It's to make disciples. The point of preaching is is the teaching of the Word of God so people can have the Word of God transforming their hearts so they're more like disciples of Christ, following whatever areas they're not. What's the point of evangelism? Well, it's making disciples. What's the point of missions? It's making disciples. All this is about discipleship. So what's the role of discipleship in the church? Absolutely crucial. I mean, prayer falls into this. I mean, part of discipleship is is praying together, teaching people how to pray. I mean, all this just weaves together. And so what does that look like in the church? Well, it's a lot, again, it's a lot of modeling. It's what we see in Scripture of the older men teaching the younger men, the older women teaching the younger women. You know, I'm convinced discipleship, while there's good discipleship programs, discipleship doesn't happen through programs. Discipleship is all about relationships. And so there's programs that can facilitate it, but discipleship, you know, I think at least my generation older, discipleship was what you did at 5 o'clock on a Sunday night and you have blanks in your workbook to fill out because the Lifeway or I guess the Sunday School Board at the time sent you stuff, you know, to fill out. That's not discipleship. You can learn discipleship skills. So that discipleship is when you get into people's business and come alongside a brother and say, hey, man. How are you doing? How's your holiness? What are you looking at online? How are you treating your wife? How are you treating your kids? You're shepherding well. You're investing time. It's getting into each other's lives and business for the good of one another's souls. And that's just sharing life together. And again, that happens more in the context of community. So role of discipleship, absolutely crucial to the mission of the church. What, how do you facilitate that? You teach, you encourage, you model, you just do it. You know, you can have programs to help, but it's going to be a lot more in terms of just for the relationships that form out of Some of my best discipleship relations have been guys I've gotten to get up and go lift weights with me at 6 o'clock in the morning. And after months of doing that, like, hey, man, can I talk to you? you got a problem going on. I'm like, sure, let's go talk. You know, it's going to be life, in the mission world, we call it life-on-life discipleship. It's you bringing other people in. So you parents who have teenage kids, you bring in that, that young couple that has a baby, doesn't know what to do with the baby. Bring them into your life and let them watch how you treat your kids and your spouse. And you just, you just share life. The more you share life, the more discipleship happens. Any follow-up questions on that one from whoever asked that one? All right, number seven, we're moving through here. Robbie, I think we're going to get done in time. Do you believe that Jesus works through brokenness? In what ways have you experienced this or seen others experience this? Yes, yes, yes. God is sovereign. God can work through anything he wants to work through. He can work through good times. He can work through trials. He's the one who gives rain and withholds rain. He's the one who pours out blessings and then dries them up. God is sovereign. God can do what he wants to do. But with brokenness, yes, God works through brokenness. Often in our culture of self-sufficiency, the Lord in his kindness to us gives us trials to draw us close to himself. I mean, James 1 tells us that. I mean, James 1 tells us, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. It doesn't say if. It says when. 
You know, when I visit people's homes at Lakeview, you know, we always walk in and you see the nice picture of an eagle. You know, you'll rise up on wings of an eagle. You know, we have these, like, fun scriptures that we always put on our walls. I've never seen James 1 framed in someone's house above their sofa. Consider a pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. You know, that's not what we put on our walls, but it's a promise. But when you face trials, don't be surprised. God's promised them. And it's not just when, it's when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Consider it pure joy. How do you find joy in that? How do you find joy in the brokenness of trials? It goes on to say, James, because you know the testing your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must have its work so you can be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God in his kindness gives us trials so that we can be matured and be more Christ-like. Is it fun? No. I think sometimes we have a lot of influence of prosperity thought in our culture that God wants us to be wealthy and happy and rich and no problem and no sickness and God, God allocates things the way he sees fit. He's sovereign over it all. But God chooses in our lives a lot of times to give us trials for our good and for his glory. And that's good for us. I mean, in Romans 8, we, we quote a lot as well. All things work together for good for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. So does God work through brokenness? Sure. Yes, have I seen that? Whoever asked that, have I seen that? Yeah, I've seen that in a lot of counseling places. We had a, one, of our, one of my dear friends on the pastoral staff at Lakeview. So we have nine pastors at Lakeview. The senior pastor and eight associates. I'm one of the eight associates. One of my closest brothers on the pastoral staff had a huge moral failure in his life recently. And thankfully, Lakeview handled it with a lot of wisdom. Instead of just shooting our wounded like churches do, we didn't kick him out. He confessed his sin, named his sin before the congregation. He confessed it. They had people come by one by one after the service, lay hands on him, say, I forgive you in Christ. I love you. I'll pray for you. Obviously, he was removed from the pastoral staff, but we said, you're not going where you're staying part of the church. Though he confessed to this back in February, they put me in charge of his care team, as there's four of us who meet with him weekly. The humiliation with his public sin was great. The brokenness was great. But the man who, is, who would stand today is totally different than the man back in February. God took brokenness and where the enemy meant such harm to divide the body. And here is a man who is being transformed. And God has not only cleaned him up from the area where his moral failure was, he's shown him other areas of his life that have the Lord. And he has gotten right with people. And I just watched this, this brother in Christ totally transformed in the midst of the public humiliation of sin, bringing him to a place of total redemption and transformation here. So, so, we've, so we've seen that happen. I mean, even in my, in my own life, some, some of the hardest times have been some of the times where the Lord's taught me the most. Um, you know, in theory, I would talk about our dependence on the Lord. But for those of you who don't know our story of our oldest one, Grave Jeremiah, who's almost six, the blonde-haired one who was, ran out a few minutes ago with other kids, um, he was a micro-preemie. He was born at 26 weeks, three and a half months premature. When he was born, he fit in the palm of my hand, one pound, 15 ounces. I still feel shut, skin translucent, GI tract totally asleep. Babies that age either die or they end up probably mentally retarded for life. I mean, they're just, there's, 26 weekers weren't designed to live outside the womb like that. And when my wife started going to, to preterm labor at 25 weeks and they put her on a helicopter at East Island Elk Center and aerovacked her to UAB because they couldn't handle it. Now I'm sitting in the parking lot of EAMC in my blue Jeep. I started bawling because I, I knew I was dependent upon the Lord, but for the first time it became real to me. I might say, oh, I know I'm dependent upon you or in evangelism or missions or stuff. But I was at a place where there was literally nothing I could do to stop labor. There was nothing I could do to help that little fellow survive as a staff. There was nothing I could do except for pray. And so for us, that trial became something that helped me understand not only the kindness of the Lord, but how God works through prayer, how God works through community. It shaped a lot of who I am today. Well, the doctors told us, kind of side, note, side trail here for a minute. The doctors told us, hey, it was a total fluke. You don't have any of the things that normally cause prematurity. You're praying again, no problems. So we do that. Richard Josiah, our little redhead, second child, who is four now, um, at 20 weeks, Joy went and started going to preterm labor with him at 20 weeks. And uh, they put her on bed rest. They put her on high levels of progesterone injections, hormone injections, to try to stop the labor. They have five scary trips to the emergency room and to labor and delivery from 20 to 36 weeks, thinking he was going to come any day. With her on bed rest and me working a full-time job as an associate pastor at a church running a bunch of programs at the church, you know, in theory, I said I understood community, but Julie could not be left alone because we had a, to- not even a toddler at home yet. He was about 18 months old at the time, and Grace Jeremiah couldn't even, couldn't even walk yet, and Mommy's not allowed to bend down and pick him up. That was an awful season, but the community rallied around us, and if I was at work, there were ladies from the church who'd be there every waking moment of the day. And so, again, I said I could read Acts until you understood community. I didn't understand community. 
But in the midst of that trial, I began to understand community and what community looks like when you come alongside people. So for us, those two trials for us have perhaps taught us more about dependency on the Lord and, um, and community than anything else. So does God, does God work through brokenness? Absolutely. God works through everything for, for his saints. He does it all to, to make us more in the image of Christ. Number eight. What are your thoughts on international ministry? Thoughts on how to grow that ministry here at Gateway as a body? Well, I've been doing international ministry since 05 at Lakeview, so I'm 11 years into international ministry. So my thoughts on it, I have to be really brief here because that's what the world I, I live in. I'm involved with an organization called Association of Christians Ministering to Internationals, and I'm on their membership committee. I've been involved with this, trying to cast a vision to churches. When we think of missions, at least around Auburn, there's three words people use all the time. Pray, give, and go. There's a fourth one that we're totally missing because it's biblical, and that's welcoming. And until we get welcoming in our vocabulary and missions, we're not going to reach internationals like we should. If you look at Acts 17.26, it talks about the God appointed. So here's back to the sovereignty of God. God appointed the boundaries of their dwelling places. So at least in Auburn, we have people from 83 nations living in little Auburn, Alabama. Why are there people from Iran there? Why are there people from Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Guatemala and Mexico and European countries and China and Korea and Thailand and Vietnam? Why are they there? Well, they may think they're coming for an education. That's not why they're there. They're there because Acts 17 and 26, God has brought them here. And why did he bring them here? That they might find their way to him. And who's the ambassador to help them find their way to Christ? Us, the church. So what, what is my thoughts on international ministry? It is just as much missions as getting on an airplane and going. Perhaps it's even more so. Because if I, at least at Lakeview over the years, the group of people who will pay $3,000 to get on an airplane and go overseas are the people I cannot get to serve in international ministry. The people who serve international ministry, I can't get them to get on an airplane and go overseas. And for me, the most discouraging time of the year is every year when I'm working to get our English program up and running. So like tonight at Lady, we'll have about 220 internationals from about 26 countries in our building right now for another 45 minutes learning English. And right now they're hearing the Bible stories. We do chronological storing with them. But when, when these individuals are here from all these countries, they think they're coming in to, to learn English. They think they're coming in just because they need English. But really, it's a church welcoming them in the name of Jesus to show the love of Christ to them. And so all I say, we've got to get, how do we do international ministry? We get into the church's vocabulary, welcoming as legitimate missions. And so when I'm starting English every year in August for it, I, I quit doing this this year because it just got too discouraging. Every year for the last three or four years, usually July, August, I would write every person at Lakeview a letter who went on an overseas mission trip who was not involved with international ministry at Lakeview, saying, hey, last year you spent $3,000. You went to, you know, we had them all over the world. We had people on, like, islands off the coast of East Africa. can't even tell you where they are. You know, I was like, you went to this country, you taught English. You can do it in our building, and it doesn't cost you a dime. And they were like, sorry, I'm too busy. And year after year, I have not picked up one person who's been overseas on a mission trip to serve in our international ministry. It's a whole different group of people. Because in their mind, missions is you pray, you give, you go. Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. And that's good. We don't need to drop that. But until we get in our vocabulary, missions is welcoming the nations. I don't have time to do this tonight, but sometime look up in your concordance of your Bible, depending on your translation, the word stranger or sojourner or international or alien. Look it up and just start walking through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua of what God says of his people. But thankfully, our pastor caught the vision of this and he let me preach a sermon at Lakeview. I'm sure the search committee heard it last year. And we just walk through the Old Testament of God's heart for the sojourner. Love him as you love your own people. Meet their needs. Invite them in their assemblies. So if you look at the, the feast in Israel's history in the Old Testament, when the law was read, if you look, notice the sojourner was in their midst. And so even for Israel's history, it wasn't just God's people set apart. They were to intentionally include the sojourner, the international in their midst, so that they might find their way to the Lord. And if you look, particularly you get to Joshua, and you'll see times to when you have now the sojourners who are worshiping alongside the people because they've come to believe. So how do, what's the role of the church? It's fundamental. It was part of the calling in Israel. It's part of the calling on the church. Is we're to welcome those that God has sovereignly brought into our midst and might find their way to the Lord. And maybe we use a big program to do that, but it doesn't require that. It's all about the relationships. Most of these internationals come from countries that are much more relational than our culture is. And so it's all about us just getting that vocabulary in our, in our, in our thinking and encouraging one another. What y'all, and one of the best ways to do that is what I think it was, was it CJ? Was it you who prayed Sunday morning for the Chinese student who was here? Friends, that's what it takes to get a church involved in internationals, is seeing it, hearing it, exposure to it, and just being a place to not be afraid of the nations, but to welcome them because we know that God has brought them here. So that's a quick answer to that one. I could, again, I've been doing this for 11 years, so I could talk a lot more. Does that answer whoever's question that was?
Anything else on that one? Okay. Last question. Okay, 720, last question. What ideas do you have about helping our body here at Gateway use our giftings to lead out in ministry? So using your gifts and ministry. Well, fundamentally two things. First of all, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 makes it very clear the job of the pastors, the elders, the overseers, and whatever term you want to use is to equip the saints for the works of service for building up the body of Christ. If you call me as pastor, you're not paying me to do ministry. You're paying me to teach the bot, to teach the word of God, and to equip you to do ministry. The job of the elders is not to, for Robbie to do all the ministry. It's for him and the other elders and the other pastors and CJ and Drew and me and the other guys to equip you to do ministry. Because God has given each of you spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, place in Peter as well. I don't remember the reference of it. But there's three or four places where you see the spiritual gifts listed. And so it's incumbent upon you to find your spiritual gifts to use them in ministry. So what can we do to help with that? Well, it'd be presumptuous of me to say what, what needs to be done because I know a little bit about you, but I don't know enough yet. It would be a conversation for the elders to have on where's the church at with this? You know, what, when was the last time y'all been taught the spiritual, this, uh, sorry, the, spiritual this one, the, the spiritual gifts? How well do you know your gifts? It might just be, again, having conversations with you guys. Maybe I should have asked that question Sunday in the gym as I'm trying to rush through and meet everybody. But what are your spiritual gifts? If you don't know them, we can equip you to, to, to work through Scripture with that. Now, how do you find your spiritual gifts? Well, a lot of people do spiritual gifts inventories, and God can work through those. But I'm not real convinced those are the best way. One, one of my friends in ministry who did his Ph.D. the same time I did my Ph.D. did his Ph.D. completely on the fallacy and the problems of spiritual gifts inventories. Because the reality is, like, I like to teach and preach. So when I get a spiritual gift inventory and it says, would you rather talk to the homeless guy on the side of the road or preach a sermon? I don't know what I want to do, so I'm going to bubble that. You know, you, know you, you kind of start to read into it and figure out what they're asking for. You can kind of almost answer a question for what you want them to be. How do you find your spiritual gifts? The best thing to do is you start serving. And, and if you're doing this in the conscious community, people are like, hey, you really blessed me when you did that. And you start realizing you have the gift of encouragement or you're teaching. Someone's like, man, God really changed me. So... The, the spiritual gifts tests have a place, but it's mostly you serving in community together and figuring out where the Lord is blessing you. And this is part of why Joy and I are at the point we are now of saying, okay, maybe the Lord's got something for us outside of what we're doing at Lakeview right now. Where we see the Lord blessing the most doesn't line up in my job description right now at Lakeview. And again, it's not discontent, but as much as, okay, Lord, this is where you're blessing, this is where we're gifted, what do we do with that? Same thing for you guys. Start serving, and when you see... May the Lord is blessing this. Run with us. Let the elders help equip you in that. Um, the only thing I would say program-wise, I think it, it would need, and maybe it's already in there, but I think it would be a key thing to do in a new member class. You obviously can't go into tons of depth in a few hours, but you do something early on with the new members in a membership class to at least do some basic teaching of spiritual gifts. You at least get put some resource in their hands of here's at least a listing of the gifts. Like, I talk to college students how to disciple all the time. Like, have you ever thought about your spiritual gifts? They're like, eh, what's that? You know, and so I'll give them a sign. I'll hand them the scriptures and say, here's the place in the scripture. Gifts are listed. Read that. Tell me what the Spirit of God speaks to you. Where, where, where do you see yourself being blessed in ministry? And so it's just a lot of those type things of just, you know, trying to resource people with that one. So that's my whirlwind answer to your nine questions, Robbie. It's 725. I don't know what you want to do in time. Do you want to take questions from the floor? If anybody has a question, please raise your hand. I can come. Yes. Julia met. How did you and Julia meet? Okay. Oh, boy. Five minutes. Okay. What, what do I do in five minutes here? <clears throat> um, so there, first of all, I need to preface it, but there's an age difference between Julia and me. I look younger than my age, so I don't know if you guys have figured out how old I am or not, but I'm actually about to turn 40 in just about, about a month and a half here. So no one at Auburn, my international friends don't believe me. They're like, how old are you, like 25? No, you know, so at least my international friends, they think I'm a lot younger than I am. So, so there's actually a 10 and a half year age difference between Julia and me. So I'm turning 40 this year, and she's turning 29. So, so I, I robbed the cradle, so to speak, really bad on this one. <laughs> So, 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 so how did we meet? I was already one of the pastors at Lakeview. Um, I've worn many hats at Lakeview over the years. One hat I wore for many years is I coordinated a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And Montgomery, some other churches, Morningview hosted it for a while. And so I was a, a regional trainer for it. So I did some stuff with Perspectives. Um, and so I hosted our classes. And we did a class on regular Perspectives, Understanding God's Heart for Missions. And I did a class on encountering the world of Islam to help equip the church to not fear Islam, but to rather to understand how we welcome the nations and minister to people of Muslim backgrounds. So I was courting that, that class. I'm staying at the first night, and there's this beautiful blonde-haired undergrad girl sitting on the front row. And I'm go, and I, she, and I notice her. I'm like, no, I'm a pastor here. She's a college student. No, not happening, not going there, you know. 
Um, and I remember as I was praying the first time, I was standing up, she's sitting about right here, and I'm praying, I'm like, just asking God to glorify his name on the nation. She's up here going, yes, Lord, would you do it for your glory? She's like, you're great. I'm like, stop, don't keep talking, I can't handle this, you know. Um, and so I knew in my heart this was wrong for a pastor to pursue one of his church members, so I just kind of let it go. But in the promise of God, our paths kept crossing, and I'm, everywhere I turned, I'd run into her. Okay, well, what's going on with this? You know? And she writes me one day and says, hey, I want to start teaching international women on Sunday mornings. Can you help? Sure. So I get her connected, and, I, and she's with the kids. I wish she should come and tell her side of the story. Like, how does a pastor who's 10 years older than her get to know her? And so I started talking to all my mentors, you know, our senior pastor, other pastors on the staff, and started talking to them about it. I'm like, Grady, we really think God's in this. You should pursue her. And I'm like, she's 10 years younger. No, you know. And they were like, Grady, we really see your, your gifts are in alignment. You call each other. I think you need to pursue Julia. What we see, she'd be a good fit. I'm like, if I'd taken her my senior prom, she, or senior, senior prom, she'd have been in second grade. No, you know. <laughs> Everything in me said, don't go there. You know? But all my mentors kept saying, Grady, we think this is right. And the more I prayed, the more the Lord kept putting her on my heart. And so how do you as a pastor get to know a church member who's, ten, who's an undergrad student? And so she'd write me, Grady, I need a Bible for, for my friend, you know, Lee Fong. So I'd write her back, yeah, I've got a Chinese Bible. How did your test go this week? And I'd write her long emails. And, she's, and she, was, she told her mom, she's like, I think this pastor's bored. He's writing me all these really long emails, you know. Well, we needed to get to know her, but the Lord kept bringing our paths together, and so finally, after about me fighting it for about six months, and everyone I knew, I'm a mentor, saying, Grady, this is God's will. We think you should pursue her. I finally called her one day and said, this has nothing to do with international ministry. Can we get together? And so we sat down at Panera in Auburn. I'm a coffee shop person. I do most of my meetings in coffee shops or Chick-fil-A or Starbucks or places like that. And so I sat down with her and said, I've been watching you for six months. I know that sounds like a stalker, but I've been watching you for six months. <laughs> I think the Lord may be drawing us together in marriage one day. You know? So I just threw it all on the table. I was like, you know, and I, was, and, and, and I said, I don't look for anything to say. Just pray about it and see if God might open your heart for me to pursue you. And she went back three weeks or three days later and said, Psalm 37, 4, I've been meditating on Delight yourself in the Lord and give you desires of your heart. The more I pray, because open my heart, yes, you can pursue me. And so and, and between that time, so after I first mentioned to her, two hours, three hours later, her dad calls. Hi, Gray, this is Rick Evans. I'm Julia's dad. I'm like, <gasps> you know. <laughs> And, and he was like, I'm glad to learn if you interested in my daughter. When can we get together in the next two days? And so on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday night, we met for dinner at Cracker Barrel in Prattville. I've never driven through Montgomery so nervous and sweaty palms as ever before. I was, in fact, so nervous. Our senior pastor, Al Jackson, excused me from our pastoral staff meeting that day. He said, Grady, I know, what, I know what the Lord's doing here. He's leading you towards Julia. Go home and rest. You're not going to be worth anything at a staff meeting anyway. <laughs> So I drove to Montgomery. Julia's dad, he's, he's such a godly man. He, he and his wife have been doing certification training with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, one of the godliest men I know. And so we just had a back and forth. He shared his testimony. He said, Grace, share with me your testimony. Here's what I have you money. What's your views on money? How are you doing with finances? Just back and forth. And just a, it wasn't like on the firing line. It was like a friend, a brother in Christ. And at the end, he said, what questions do you have for me? I said, well, one, I'm old, I may be too old for your daughter. What do you think about the age difference? He said, Grady said, her mom and I have realized years ago that she's so spiritually mature. Whoever marries her is going to be much older than her. This is just God's answer to our prayers. And just, he said, I'm giving you my blessing to pursue my daughter. And so the rest is history. So it started with this awkward moment. Our first date, I had to park because she lived in the dorms on campus. You talk about awkward. I'm a pastor at Lakeview. I've got a teddy bear parked in the student parking or the visitor parking. Hiking across the undergraduate girls' dorm on campus. I'm like, if someone from the Alabama Baptist snaps my paper, snaps my picture, I'm done for. You know? <laughs> But the Lord worked through it all, and so we dated for six months, got engaged right after I finished my Ph.D. comprehensive exams. We were engaged for six months, got married in June of 2009, and three kids later, she's been a partner in ministry and just my best friend, and I'm thankful for her. So maybe two yeah. on me. We are out of time, but he's going to stay afterwards, yes. and you can talk to him and, and fellowship with him. And then, of course, if you have other questions, please ask those. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for who you are, Lord God. Thank you for you being the love of our lives, being our first love. And we just thank you for this opportunity tonight to hear from Grady and to hear his heart and to really and truly dig into to who he is at the depths of his heart. And Lord, I just pray that we continue to get a sense for who you are through him as you continue to lead him in ministry. And we just thank you for all of this time tonight. And we just ask your many, many blessings on us as we go from here. And we pray all this right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.